Hello, my name's John Dennis. It's Wednesday the 10th of March. Today, the Northern Ireland Assembly has voted to devolve policing and criminal justice powers to Belfast. What Washington, London and Dublin all wanted was complete unanimity that all the parties in the Assembly would sign up for this, but that hasn't happened. The deal was supported by the Assembly, despite David Cameron's failure to persuade the Ulster Unionists to back the proposals. At a pretty basic level, it shows that he's tried to use his influence with the Ulster Unionist Party and it hasn't worked, so that raises questions about his political clout over them. Also today, as plans to make all dogs carry microchips are announced, we hear the view from people walking their dogs on Wandsworth Common. Staffordshire Bull Terriers are just the most wonderful dogs for family. This dog is so child-orientated. Jess Cartner-Morley on Alexander McQueen's last collection. It was a very sombre occasion. It was very sad. We didn't really know what to expect. I don't think people quite knew what it would be like, but in the event, it felt, it felt very, very sad. And tales from the front line of the 999 service. Ambulance control blogger turned author Susie Brent. Um, we've had a man ringing up because there was a bee in his front room. Um, <laughs> someone who thought he was going to get an abscess on his teeth, but hadn't actually yet. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk. First, our top story. A crunch vote yesterday at the Northern Ireland Assembly means the devolution of policing and criminal justice powers to Belfast. It effectively stabilises Northern Ireland's power-sharing government. But despite the intervention of George Bush, Hillary Clinton and David Cameron, the Ulster Unionist Party refused to back the deal. The Guardian's Ireland correspondent is Henry MacDonald. Well, yesterday's vote, you had the combined vote of Sinn Féin and the Democratic Unionist Party along with the SDLP and smaller parties like the Alliance. And there was a sufficient majority from both communities, both in the Unionist and Nationalist communities, which allowed for the creation of a justice ministry and the transfer of policing and judicial powers from London to Belfast. Now, the Ulster Unionist Party uh, didn't manage to scupper the deal, but to what extent did their opposition undermine this settlement? I think they've landed a few important blows on their rival Democratic Unionist Party. They didn't like this deal for all kinds of reasons, partly because they believe that the overall power-sharing government here is dysfunctional, that it... It operates as a series of fiefdoms rather than a united, coherent government. So they use this vote, if you like, to protest the way the government is being run. And I think that uh, they will... My my projection would be they will gain votes out of this this, this refusal to back the deal. Well, what, as for the, um, the result of the vote itself, uh, what does that mean for devolution in Northern Ireland? Well, it means we're going to have an, our first justice minister in 38, 38 years, and he will be David Ford, the leader of the centrist sort of liberal alliance party. They're linked to the Liberal Democrats, by the way. And it will mean that some parts, of not, not not all, will be devolved. Uh, there will be, for example, more control over the police and the appointment of judicial appointments. There will be the creation of an attorney general for Northern Ireland. But I think it's important to stress this, that... Key security powers, such as uh, the control of terrorism and indeed drug trafficking, remain in the hands of the Home Office. They remain in the hands of, um, in many cases, MI5. MI5 is not accountable to uh, the Justice Minister here. And it's worth pointing out that the second largest concentration of MI5 officers is based here in Northern Ireland in a town called Hollywood outside Belfast. So that is something that rankles with nationalists. And it suggests that 
if you like, the devolution of policing and justice is, is as important for symbolic reasons as it is for substantial ones. Uh, Washington was very keen that this um, agreement should go ahead. Will they be happy now, today? Well, I think they will be happy that it's being done. There is a lot of disquiet about the Ulster Unionist stance on this, and there was disappointment. What Washington, London and Dublin all wanted was complete unanimity that all the parties in the Assembly would sign up for this, but that hasn't happened. Nonetheless, there was enough votes out there to secure a majority of Unionists and a majority of Nationalists. Now, the key question next, which I'm writing about today in The Guardian, is how will this affect the Democratic Unionist Party's vote in the forthcoming general election? And I think that will be a test of how popular this is within the Unionist community. Within the Nationalist community, uh, there's a relief that it's all over, that the final piece of the devolution jigsaw is put in place. Henry MacDonald in Belfast. Well, the Conservatives agreed an electoral pact with the Ulster Unionists. David Cameron supports the devolution of policing powers to Belfast. But he couldn't persuade the Ulster Unionists to back the deal. Nicholas Watt, our chief political correspondent, is in Westminster. Nick, what does this vote mean for the Tories? I think that this vote in the Northern Ireland Assembly is a difficult moment for David Cameron. Of course, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the final stage of devolution has gone through. Uh, emphatic vote in the Northern Ireland Assembly, but of course the 18 uh, Ulster Unionist members of the Assembly said no, and they said no after David Cameron had said it would be rather good if you voted for this, and uh, David Cameron reinforced that message obviously after the former President George Bush said it would be a good idea if you could use your good offices to persuade the Ulster Unionists um, to vote this way. Now why is this not good news for David Cameron? Well, at a pretty basic level, it shows that he's tried to use his influence with the Ulster Unionist Party and it hasn't worked. So that raises questions about his political clout over them. But it raises rather bigger questions about this alliance that David Cameron has formed uh, with the Ulster Unionist Party. Uh, Obviously, until 1972, when uh, direct rule was imposed uh, from London over Northern Ireland, there was a historic alliance between those two parties. And David Cameron has reformed that alliance. And the question that it asks is that uh, this is the biggest issue facing Northern Ireland this year. This is the final piece of the jigsaw. And you have the Conservative Party in London saying we fully support the devolution of policing and criminal justice powers to Northern Ireland. Oh, but by the way, our uh, partners uh, in Northern Ireland who will be standing on the same electoral uh, ticket as us don't agree with that. Now, David Cameron is trying to say, look, our alliance with the the Ulster Unionists is about the big issues. It's about taxation policy. It's about social policy. It's about introducing non-sectarian politics into Northern Ireland. What happens in the Northern Ireland Assembly? Well, that's a matter for local parties to work out. I think the Tories will face quite a lot of criticism on that. At a basic level, those powers for them to be devolved will have to be devolved by the United Kingdom Parliament, of which the Conservatives are an important part. But it also raises questions. This is the final stage of a 15-year search for peace, and it appears that the Conservative Party and the Ulster Unionists disagree on the final and most important element of that 15-year search for peace. And the fact that George Bush intervenes shows how seriously the Americans take this. Uh, Will they take a a dim view of Cameron's role? I think that the Americans will take a particularly dim view of the Ulster Unionist role. 
I think uh, that uh, the Americans will now be asking questions about the political strength of, of David Cameron, but certainly on the Republican side in the United States, and as far as George Bush is concerned, everything we are told about that conversation with David Cameron is that George Bush thought that David Cameron was engaged, he was making an effort, he was aware of the importance of this. So. I can't speak for George Bush, but I get the impression that David Cameron might well have made an impression on him. Nicholas Watt in Westminster. And there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash politics. I'm Tom Clark, presenter of Politics Weekly, and next week our show goes on the road in the run-up to the election. First stop is Tuesday in Manchester, where we'll record our programme in front of a live studio audience. Polly Toynbee, Michael White and John Harris will be on the panel. So come along and pitch questions to them and hear what they've got to say about the big issues as Britain goes to the polls. Tickets are £5. Visit www.guardian.co.uk forward slash politics to buy your tickets. The late fashion designer Alexander McQueen's last collection has been unveiled in Paris. Fashion editor Jess Cartner-Morley says the mood at the grand Paris townhouse where the clothes were presented was bleak. It was a very sombre occasion. It was very sad. We didn't really know what to expect. I don't think people quite knew what it would be like, but in the event, it felt, it felt very, very sad. This was an unfinished collection by Alexander McQueen, wasn't it? Yes. What the position was when um, McQueen died, that he was working on lots of lots of pieces. A full catwalk collection would usually be around 30 or 40 pieces. When he died, there were 16 pieces, which were, his design team say, they were kind of 80% finished. And so what the design team did was they worked on those 16 pieces that they felt were Lee had, Lee had made. He'd, he'd cut all those pieces himself on the stand. The, the piece was, was done by him. And they finished those 16 pieces, and that was what we saw today. And can you describe them for us? The theme of the collection, McQueen always took a, took a theme, was very interested in references, and there were lots of layers to what he did. And the theme of today was Byzantine art. Um, he'd looked at lots of painters, sort of early Netherlands painters and Italian painters like Botticelli, and he used lots of references, pictorial references, of angels and cherubs and madonnas and... Also, those kind of paintings were referenced in the shapes. There were sort of very long flowing robes and capes over dresses of the type you might see in a in an sort of 15th century Annunciation. But also, these were contrasted with uh, very tailored, tightly waisted, sculpted, exaggerated shoulder kind of shape. So it was a, it was a very McQueen mix of some pieces which had a very historical bent and then some pieces which were sort of extremely futuristic. Uh, will this be the last collection to bear Alexander McQueen's name? No, the Alexander McQueen label will definitely continue. That has been confirmed by Gucci Group. This was the last collection that was designed by Lee Alexander McQueen. Um, if Gucci Group wanted there to be another collection, a next collection in October, which would normally be when the next one was, they would need to appoint a designer really very soon to start working on that. They don't seem to be about to do that, so it may be that what they will do is take a season off and then buy the label a bit of time to appoint somebody in time to then come back and um, show a collection in one, in, in one year's time. Jess Cartner-Morley.
I'm on Wandsworth Common in South London, a popular place for people walking their dogs, all of which will have to carry a microchip under new plans announced by the government to extend the Dangerous Dogs Act. It's all part of a crackdown on dangerous dogs. Complaints about dog fights rose 12-fold between 2004 and 2008. Well, let's find out what some of the dog owners think about it. Well, she does, Holly. She carries one already? Yeah, she does, yeah. What's her name? Holly. Hello, Holly. Get down. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's, you know, in their own interest, really. Because if the dog goes missing and gets taken to, like, a local police station or local authority, they'll be able to get tracked down. And do you think it should be made compulsory, though, because that's what's going to happen? Um... I think it should really. So it just calls, you know, it would just be easier to track their dogs down. Why did you decide to get your dog microchipped? Uh, in case he got lost, I wanted to be able to find him easily. But do you think it should be made compulsory because that's what's being announced? I think it's up to the dog owner uh, and also the breed of dog. That's very interesting. My dogs at home all have microchips. I think if a dog gets lost, that's uh, an ideal way of finding it. If you take the dog abroad, you've got to have a microchip anyway, lots of other medical things. No, I, th I think, what about humans? It's part of a plan to crack down on dangerous dogs. I don't think this dog here is dangerous though, is it? Because dangerous dogs are an increasing problem, apparently. I mean, there's been so much publicity about it that I can't understand why people, particularly in an urban area, should even want a dangerous dog, particularly in the presence of children, because that's what you read about, these dreadful accidents. Yeah, they're calling them status dogs, you know, people just getting a, a dangerous dog to, to sort of improve their status somehow. Better to get a smart car. <laughs> Good advice. Thank you very much, sir. There's no dangerous dogs, just dangerous owners. Yeah. And people of a certain ilk tend to want to be um, an extension of their anger and they get that kind of dog to do the things that they want. It's not the dog's nature to do it, it's the people. So it's the people training the dogs to, to fight yes, and stuff? Without a doubt. I've watched them up here training them on branches of trees, yeah. hanging on by their jaws. Ridiculous. Yeah. We really didn't want a Staffordshire Bull Terrier or Bull Terrier Cross, but then I got called to the dog's home and there was my little brown 12-week-old puppy. We, all, all we know is she, she's a Staffordshire Bull Terrier mostly, but we think she's crossed with another terrier. Is this a dangerous dog? When we went down the road of, of deciding to get a dog, and my concern, my uneducated concern was lots of staffs, I don't know the temperament of the dog, so we held out for a puppy. And I've got to say, as a, as a, as a father, Staffordshire Bull Terriers are just the most wonderful dogs for family. This dog is so child-orientated, we, we haven't trained her to do it, but even when we're over the common, she is so concerned that if, if my daughter runs off, we just have to say her name and the dog's off and finds her. And it's become a game now. They are just the most wonderful dog that you could wish to own if they're treated correctly. So, so do you think it's the treatment of the dogs that makes them dangerous? If anything were to happen to me or my wife over the common, if someone was to try to attack them, uh, this dog is going to give up its life to protect it, its pack, its family. And these dogs have the ability to defend themselves and others very, very well. Yeah. The real unfortunate part is that um, a little known nickname for these dogs is nanny dogs, because apparently, historically, these dogs were brought into the country for fighting purposes, and uh, they were absolutely useless. And they were given to the nanny to look after the children. You can make any dog vicious. These dogs, they kind of look the part, and you know what, I really wish they didn't, because it is just not in their nature. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. 
For the last five years, the extraordinary experiences of an ambulance control worker, the person on the end of the line if you dial 999, have been recorded on a blog. Well, now Susie Brent's day-to-day dramas form the basis of a book, Ninor, Real Life Dispatches from Ambulance Control. She tells how she took the very first call on the 7th of July 2005 when a gang of terrorists attacked London's transport system. I took the very first call, which was from um, the fire brigade. All they said was they think there might have been an explosion, that, that they needed an ambulance on standby, but this is not an uncommon happening. Usually it's a false alarm or a very small explosion that doesn't need our, our input. So it was only as we got more and more calls, we realised that we had a major incident um, on our hands. Of course, it is a position of great responsibility uh, working in a 999 uh, call centre. And um, you have done uh, one of the, the great things that journalists love. You've delivered a baby over the phone. Yeah, I've um, delivered quite a few babies over the phone now. But my, my first one was actually in a, a pub toilets um, and the barmaid was delivering the baby. And what happened? Um, I don't know why the lady was in the pub toilet in the first place at nine months pregnant. Maybe she just wandered in there. Um, the barmaid rang frantic for help and said, the baby's coming right now. As it is with babies, they just generally come by themselves. So what you have to watch is that the baby doesn't fall on the floor as it comes out and that the baby's all right as soon as it's born. Um, so it's always reassuring when you hear the baby start to cry. <laughs> Do they ever get back to you and say, oh, you know, just want to say thanks for your help? And, uh, or, or is it are you kind of, you know, you're just on to the next job and they've forgotten about you? Not, not that, that day, but sometimes a few weeks later they will write in and say thank you for helping and tell us about some of the other world. dramatic calls you've had. Because you've had one, you know, someone said the vicar's been stabbed. What happened after that? Yeah, that was a very strange call. And the vic- vicar had just been doing his parish rounds in a normal way. And a psychiatric patient had singled him out, gone up and stabbed him. Fortunately, he knocked, uh, the vicar knocked on someone's door for help and they were there. Um, he was a very helpful man at the end of the phone. He did everything he was asked to and quite possibly saved the vicar's life. Um, that was in all the newspapers, of course, so um, I got to find out what happened, even got to see the person I'd spoken to on the, being interviewed on the TV, and I was able to follow the story and found out that the vicar did survive and recover. Now, we also, one of the other things that the media enjoys uh, is hearing about uh, people dialing 999 for the most ridiculous reasons, and uh, you've had a few of these. What have been some of the, the sort of silly things that people have said when they've dialed 999? Um, we've had a man ringing up because there was a bee in his front room. Um, someone who thought he was going to get an abscess on his teeth, but hadn't actually yet. Um, and someone who'd called for an ambulance a week ago after being injured and just got home from hospital and wanted the ambulance to come back and clean up the blood. <laughs> now, what's your view of the great British public after doing this job? Some of them need to be better educated. Some of them need to have a bit more consideration for other people and the services they're using. But... Um, some of them are very kind towards other people and you, you are really pleased by the way they react to you on the phone. Susie Brent and her book Ninor, Real Life Dispatches from Ambulance Control is published by Penguin. And you can read Susie's blog from whence the book sprang at Ninor, that's N-E-E-N-A-W, ninor.co.uk. Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe were the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.